not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. everyone and welcome to the Bobble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled as well as books about recovery. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And it's just me on the episode today because I've been hearing that you're anxious to know where I've been and you'd like me to get back to regular programming. So in the interest of quickly getting a show up for you today, I am recording a solo episode and then I will edit the other interviews that I have for you for the upcoming shows. So here I am. I'm back. Uh, I've been away for a few weeks from the podcast and I want to thank you for your patience while I took a much needed break, even though it was a rather spontaneous break. I'll tell you what happened. I knew I was going to be going to our cottage in the woods at the end of May, and I intended to get one episode out before I left and then one while I was there. So I was scrambling on that last day to get packed and ready to go. May was super busy for me here. And on that last day, it became very clear to me that I could either do everything and be super stressed Or I could let a few things go and keep my head on straight. And you know what? Sometimes uh, we just have to practice what we preach. And I'm always telling you to be gentle with yourselves. And I had to realize that, you know what? The world is going to keep on turning even without a bubble hour episode. So I gave myself a week off. Then I got to the cabin. And by the way, the cabin is an eight hour drive north. So I live in the prairies in Alberta, in Canada, and it's eight hours north of here into the boreal forest. So when I got there, our internet was out. And you know what? It is so remote. It takes uh, 10 days to just even get a repair tech to come out there. So we'd planned to be up there for a week. My husband needed to get back, so I ended up staying behind alone for a few extra days to wait for the technician. So not only did I not have internet, which meant I couldn't post the next show, which I'd intended to do while I was there, but it it was also another week after that while I waited out the repair. So I've been going to that cabin in the woods with my husband since I was 18 years old. It was a property that he and his family had been camping on since he was a tyke in the 70s, and now we're in our 50s. And in all of these years of going there, which is like 35 plus years, I've never, ever spent a night alone out there. Never mind, several days. Several days without the internet and with with like one bar of cell phone reception. And there's bears in the area. There was a lynx spotted in the area. So it's like, it's wild up there. So the other thing about being there by myself is that drinking used to be a big part of what happened out there. Um, I mean, it was a big part of what happened everywhere, but uh, it was it was pretty cool to be alone out there in a place where as teenagers, you know, we drank. And then as young adults, um, just learning to be social and classy. Um, we always drank around the campfire or drank at meals. And then as a young mom, having 
our kids out there that was always busy and stressful and and so alcohol was a trade at the end of the day and then came the wine years of my 30s and 40s and I just remember that when I quit drinking I was 43 I'd quit in March and so that first summer was really hard so was the next summer and I I was like I was kind of freaking out (laughs) I remember losing it because one of the kids I walked in the cabin and one of the kids was sitting there drinking this special soda that I'd brought for myself. And I was in a panic because I thought those are the alcohol, non-alcoholic drinks I bought for me. Like, what am I going to do if those are gone? We're out here in the middle of nowhere. And this was my crutch. This was my tool. And I remember that being like a big panic and, and a, a lot of thought and change went into being able to be there and be comfortable and just breaking the pattern, right? Just breaking the pattern of how we socialize, how we relax and how we experience different surroundings, how we treat ourselves, how we, how we think things are going to go, what we think is normal sitting around a campfire or having an outdoor meal. So it's just so much easier now. And being there by myself wasn't hard. Not drinking there now isn't hard. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking that if you're struggling, I just want you to know it gets easier. It gets really easy. And there was a time when I loved being alone because it meant that I could drink how I wanted to drink without anyone seeing me or without anyone holding me back, without any commitments to, you know, regulate when and how I could drink. And to know that I was going to have a huge amount of time alone out there and to not even want to drink, I mean, that's just amazing. It's, it's pure freedom. And feeling like I never have to escape myself. You know, like I knew I might be bored, I might be scared, I might be restless, I might be lonely, but there were lots of ways that I could solve those issues that were more appealing to me now than drinking. I mean, it just doesn't appeal to me now. It would ruin whatever I was doing. So I really love that aspect of sober living, and it feels really good to be free in that way. And yeah, freedom. So anyway, I want to tell you, so I was there by myself. I read, I cleaned, and this cabin is like... I mean, it's obviously we're really grateful to have this really cool property to go and enjoy, but the cobwebs are like literally endless. So you just kind of have to suspend any feelings you have about bugs and critters and just think, okay, it's their world. We're just visiting it. But for most of the time that I was alone out there, I was just working on something, puttering around. And one thing that I had always wanted to do was to build a big driftwood sculpture. So a couple of summers ago, my husband and I did a van trip and we live in Alberta, Canada. So I know a lot of you bubble hour listeners are in the U S and some of you confess to me that you really don't know Canadian geography. That's totally fine. But right now, just so you know where I'm coming from, go go and Google uh, or search on your phone, Alberta, Canada. Okay. So you can see where I'm at. I'm in Southern Alberta. And we drove down through Colorado and we circled back through Yellowstone on our way home. And there was just all of these really cool sculptures and furniture that were made out of driftwood. And then when we got to Jackson Hole, there's this 
these amazing arches on the park in the center of town that are made out of antlers. And when we got back then home and, and back to the lake, I started eyeballing all the driftwood that was washing up on the beach and trying to imagine what I could do with, do with it. And I'd seen some that were like full-size horses, which were really cool, all made out of driftwood. So I knew that, like, obviously a full-size horse was going to be out of my skill set. But I thought, hey, this is my chance to maybe play around with this. And I'm here by myself. I have nothing to do. I have time to fill. So I decide I'm going to gather driftwood and make a driftwood sculpture. So I, I decided that a heart would be fairly easy to make. And I had enough wood to make it about four feet tall. And then but, okay, so I knew that I needed some tools, obviously. And what we have out there is this garage from the 1980s, which my father-in-law has since passed away, but he was very, like, orderly and organized and handy. And so f for the past, like, 50 years since they built this thing, uh, you know, whatever leftovers he had from whatever projects he was doing around there, he would sort it, organize it, label it, and, and put it into this garage. And because it's so remote out there, like whatever you take there gets left behind. So um, this garage has got like every leftover, like paintbrush and nail and tool, everything. But it's all just kind of like higgly piggly organized in the garage. So I start digging through this and I decide like I'm going to need a drill, some glue and some wooden dowels. And none of that is in there. Of course, none of that is there. But I managed to find like a hammer and a chisel and some kind of cording. So I thought, okay, I can do this. And is this even interesting? I don't know. It was interesting to me. So I'm sharing it with you. If it's boring, just like skip this whole episode and I'll see you next week. But if you're with me, bless you. So here's where I've been while well, you're wondering where I've been. So anyway, I was in the woods making this project and, um, I'm thinking this isn't going to be too hard, even though I didn't have the right tools. I kind of knew what I was doing, but not exactly. The only thing I really had in abundance was time, right? Like nothing to do, nothing. I'm out in the middle of nowhere by myself without internet, without people to talk to, without really things to do. And so anyway, I, I'm going to make this sculpture, I decide. And um, so the first day I get it mostly built and I built it laying flat, like laying down on the ground and it was pretty huge. And so then when I tried to stand it up, of course, uh, it just all collapsed under its own weight. And then I felt pretty foolish because I literally spent like a whole day doing this project. So then on day two, I spent that whole day trying to fix what wasn't working. And so even though this was clearly a flawed design, okay, so stay with me. This is like this four foot high heart. Well, what does a heart come down to? It comes down to a point. So all of the weight has to somehow balance on this point. And if you can believe it, me, not an engineer, couldn't figure this out. So it was just too big to support its own weight. But I'd already put so much time into it that I didn't want to give up on it. So the reason I'm telling you this is because I feel like this is symbolic of the mistakes that we make in life, right? I knew it wasn't going to work. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I didn't have the right tools. 
And, uh, but I was determined because I had already put so much time into it. So what I started to do on the second day was I start trying to tie all of these like really elaborate lashings. You know what I mean? Like where you wrap cord in a pattern and it took me a lot of tries to figure it out, but I finally got it and it actually looked like quite beautiful. And then again, I stood it up and these lashings weren't enough to save the day. And so again, this darn thing collapsed in on itself. And I started to realize that what I was feeling was that I was kind of embarrassed, you know, like I really wanted this to work because I'd put so much time into it and I felt like I had to account for all of like for what I was doing out there. Like nobody cared what I was doing. Everyone was grateful that I'd volunteered to stay behind alone in the woods um, because that meant that, you know, if the internet could get fixed then for the rest of the summer, when people go to use it, it'll be working. Right. So then someone else doesn't have to deal with it. Nobody really cared how I filled my time there, but I felt like I had to do something productive. I felt like I had to have something to show for it. And I'll be honest, this thing that I built looked pretty bad. It looked like something I might've built when I was a kid, a little kid. Right. And, and so I was feeling kind of silly and kind of embarrassed. So two days into this thing, and what I have, it went from bad to worse, basically. I mean, the, the idea was good. The concept was good. But I was just like trying to save something that obviously wasn't going to, wasn't worth saving. And so on the third day, I, I got up and I was like, listen, I have two choices here. I can take this apart and throw it in the fire. And honestly, that was kind of my, that was kind of my first choice because I wanted to destroy the evidence almost <laughs> of having wasted my time. And, um, and there, but there was a lot of nails, like there was probably 30 or 40 pieces of wood and each one had at least two nails in it. So there was like a lot of nails hammered into this driftwood that I was going to have to pull out by hand with the back of a hammer. So I start taking this thing apart and, um, thinking I'm going to burn it. And then as I'm taking it apart, you know what? I was starting to see what went wrong. And that felt a lot like recovery too, right? You can just imagine like dismantling this thing. And the farther back I pull it, you know, the more I realized that the beginning of it wasn't so bad. It was, it was in how I built it, where I went from there. So I started to realize that in the last few days, even though I'd made mistakes building this thing, I'd also learned a bit. And instead of throwing it on the fire, I decided, okay, I'm going to see if I can do a better job. And I have to give a shout out to my friend, Nikki, because I did send her a picture of it. I confessed to her what I was up to. And she, she encouraged me to see if I could make it work. So thanks, Nikki. And um, uh, so I decided, okay, I think I can do this. So anyway, I did. I rebuilt it from the bottom up. And the thing is, I had to make it smaller. I had to build it standing up from the beginning instead of laying down and then lifting it up. And I had to just keep it stable the whole way through. So I figured that out. And it actually looks pretty good. I'm, I'm feeling really good about it. So I'll post some pictures of it on my Instagram page, which is Jean McCarthy Wright. So if you want to see the finished result, I don't have pictures of all the collapsed 
mess that I made, but the finished result is there and it looks pretty good. So anyway, this isn't, this really isn't about the sculpture. It's about the lesson and the symbolism of the process. And, and that is that even out there alone in the woods with nothing to do and no one to account to, I was imagining judgment. I was hustling for my worthiness. I was trying to outsmart criticism and it took some real intentional, uh, quiet, thoughtful self-direction to just allow myself to make mistakes and to just show up at the end of the week with a two-foot sculpture instead of a four-foot sculpture and to also know that none of that matters, okay? So I just had to be gentle with myself and, and that felt really good in the end. But it was interesting how, like, left to my own devices, I just was falling right back into those old patterns of being hard on myself and feeling like I had to justify being still. And meanwhile, I was trying to post what I could on social media to let you guys know that I was okay, because I know that some of you worry about me when I miss a show and you were messaging, messaging me, I got quite a few emails and messaging messages asking if I was okay. And I do appreciate it. I do, but I don't want you to worry about me or I don't want you to think that anytime I take a break, it means that something is wrong. And at the, at the end of it all, actually within a few days, I was starting to feel like, you know what, this actually feels pretty good to take a break. Like, this this week, I was looking back on the stats and the calendar. And so this week, it's five years ago this week since I took over as sole producer and host of the show. So way back, for those of you who have either followed the show from the beginning or have dug back into the archives, there used to be four of us who produced and hosted this show together, actually five altogether. So from 2012 to 2016, uh together we we did 130 episodes in those first 4 years and then in the last 5 years it's just been me and in the last 5 years i've done another 200 episodes on my own and honestly you guys that's a lot like that is a lot and i looking back on blog talk radio which is which is where uh, we host the show. Like that's the website where everything's hosted. Um, the all-time downloads for this show after all these years are, are you ready for this? Because it's amazing. 3,944,956. So that means that by the end of this month, we will roll over onto 4 million listens of the bubble hours, 4 million. Like that's bananas, 330 episodes, 4 million downloads. So amazing. So I can see why I'm tired and I'm sure you can too, because it's, it's a lot. It's, it's been a lot and it's been amazing, but I kind of am catching my breath right now and realizing like, you know, I might be tired for a reason. So anyway, here in Canada and if you haven't searched for Canada or Alberta, Canada yet, just pause and search it because I want you to know where I am. It's important to me that you know where I'm coming to you from. I don't know why, but I want to feel seen. Um, and I'm recording this in, in June of 2021. So we're here. We're just about ready to come out of lockdown from the COVID 
pandemic. So I realize right now, a lot of you listeners have been back to normal for a while now. And for those of you that are listening in the future, you're probably thinking like, oh yeah, 2020, 2021, the pandemic, that was, that was a long time ago. And that was weird. But for me, as I'm recording this, um, I'm in it. And because I'm in Canada, you know, we're less populated. And so our vaccine rollout has just taken a little bit longer And where I'm in Alberta, we had a really bad third wave and had to go back into lockdown in May. So it's, it's been tough here. um, It's been tough everywhere, but we're, the point is timing wise, we're just at the end of it. So for the last 18 months, it's just been my husband and me in our home. And I've been doing lots of writing and painting and lots of recording of this podcast, but it's also a time where I really haven't been seeing my family, uh, at least not in the way we're used to. And my kids and their spouses and the grandkids and my extended family, like we all live here in this same city and we normally do a lot together as a family. And it's been a really long year of not being able to do that, as I'm sure a lot of you are feeling too. But now that we're getting back to the end of it and the light is at the end of the tunnel and it's time to kind of come out of our holes and re-engage with the world, I feel like I really want to be intentional about what I put back into my life and really decide what do I want to return to and what do I not want to allow back into my life? Like what was, what was I doing that was maybe not serving me like, um, just sports or busyness or I don't know, just how, this is where I'm, I'm, I want to be intentional about everything I let back into my life. And so as I'm thinking about that, it's just, it feels a little bit overwhelming. And I don't know if you guys feel it too, but I just feel overwhelmed. And so when I took that rest and took a pause and just had some alone time and some quiet time, even after a long year of quiet time, it just, it just kind of felt good, but overwhelming. And what it brought to mind for me is that years ago, one of my kids was, was really sick in the hospital and he was little and I was there with him. I was sleeping in a chair by his bed and I was handling this crisis really calmly. Like I was a champ, you know, young mom. It was very hard, but I was a champ, I gotta say. And the doctor, my son's doctor said something interesting to me, which she said, you know, a lot of times we stay calm through a crisis and calm through a hard time. But when it's over, when we think like, oh, okay, everything's over, that's sometimes when we fall apart. And it can take us by surprise because we think, well, why am I freaking out now when everything's okay, but I didn't freak out back then when when things were so hard? Like, what's wrong with me that I'm falling apart now? But the doctor told me, to be aware of that and that if it occurs, it's normal and it can happen. And if it does happen, don't beat yourself up. Just ask for help or, or do what you need to do to take care of yourself because it's just kind of human nature to stay calm through the hard times and then freak out later. And that's exactly what this reminds me of. It's that it's like a re-entry freak out. Like when the worst is behind us now and it, and things get back to normal, that's when it just feels safe to kind of like exhale and realize what a hard time we've come through. So, so just to give you a heads up, I have three more episodes to post in the next few weeks. 
Uh, so after this one, I've got three and then I'm going to take another break for the summer. It felt really good and I felt like I needed it. And I've got three books in the works right now. So there's two new unpickled guides that are going to come out one in the fall and one in the winter. And I'll be telling you more about those in the next few weeks. And then as you've heard me talk about my novel these last few years, and I'm polishing up the novel this summer, and hopefully you'll be reading it sometime soon. And then I just, I just really need some time with my family this summer, just, just togetherness and stillness. So when you don't see some new bubble hour episodes this summer, I want you to know I'm totally okay, but I am taking good care of myself in those summer months off. Uh, but anyway, meanwhile, there's a few things I want to share with you from my inbox. So like I said, I got a lot of messages from people who were worried that I hadn't been posting shows, and I want to thank you all for looking out for me. Um, but I, I also get some other things that are pretty interesting, and I want to share them with you. So one thing I get is a monthly newsletter from the Recovery Research Institute, and I highly recommend you look into this. It's a really interesting newsletter. So a lot of what we hear about recovery is anecdotal, and recovery is notoriously hard to study and quantify because it's self-diagnosed and it's self-treated and it's a lot of anonymity. And until recently, there just wasn't a lot of data around it. And I find this newsletter super interesting because it is um, results of all these studies that have been happening in the recovery field. So in this last newsletter that I got, there was a really interesting article on 12-step programs and non-12-step programs and why they work, if they work, why they work and how they work. And it revealed a study that showed that both 12-step and non-12-step programs had some overlap. They both had some common active ingredients, even though they had a lot of differences. It looked at what are the things they have in common that work. And the study revealed five key things of mutual self-help groups that identified um, that were identified by the researchers. So the five key themes that were working in these groups were, first of all, perspective taking. So listening to other people describe how they dealt with uh, problems, promoted self-awareness and an ability to adopt new perspectives. So just being in proximity to other people in recovery was helpful. Uh, and hearing how they dealt with things. The second thing was connection. So not just being around other people in recovery, but building new friendships and specifically feeling accepted despite your past and the stability and safety in the group and the importance of giving and accepting support. So that was kind of an eye-opener to me in recovery, that it wasn't just accepting support from others that was helpful, but also giving support to others is helpful. The third thing was developing new skills. So learning tools that not only help with recovery, but also transfer to other areas of life. And these included avoiding triggers, setting goals, self-monitoring, and other coping skills. The fourth thing was the value of group activities. And that included creating new interests and a sense of achievement. And also that attending group activities like meetings or other get-togethers filled up time that a person used to spend in their pattern of addiction, so drinking or using a substance. And then the, the fifth thing that was of common value in all of the groups was that they gave hope that people needed to create a change within themselves. And that these changes that they made in themselves allowed them to achieve recovery. 
So those were the five key things. And again, this comes from the Recovery Research Institute. The website is recoveryanswers.org. And this isn't an endorsement or an ad or anything. I just really find their work interesting. And I think that you might as well. Um, It really, for me, it's been really eye-opening because sometimes we think, well, the way I did this is the right way and I disagree with other ways. And as you read this, you realize it's not that the other, other ways are right or wrong. It's just that they're different for different reasons. And it's really about finding a fit that feels right for us. Um, The other thing that comes into my inbox is a lot of emails from listeners who have inspiring stories to tell. And I thought I would read one for you today on this episode. This one comes from Stephanie and Stephanie's Instagram handle is mama doesn't drink. And she sent me a message. She gave me permission to read you her message. And uh, the subject line that she sent was pulled out of a nosedive in COVID. So Stephanie's like a lot of people whose drinking escalated during COVID and, um, and who managed, she managed to pull herself out of it. And if you're struggling during COVID, I'm hoping that Stephanie's message will give you some hope. And if you have also uh, pulled yourself out of a nosedive in COVID, I'm hoping that connect with Stephanie and um, so that you have, you know, someone who's walking this path with you. But anyway, I thought this message was really lovely. She says, dearest Jean, I just think that's so sweet. Dearest Jean, there's another listener named Annie who always used to email me, dearest Jean. (laughs) It's very sweet. Uh, Okay, Stephanie says, you have been a guiding voice in my head and heart for almost nine months. The bubble hour has been my soft place to land whenever I needed to feel less alone. So from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your curiosity, and thank you for gathering the beautifully flawed and growing souls to share their stories. The space you continue to hold for all of us is a big, warm hug from Canada. And a sidebar, where in Canada? Haha, those of you who Googled, you know, you know where I am. (laughs) Uh, Stephanie goes on. So on June 6, 2021, I will reach nine months alcohol-free and the amount of time it takes to grow a new life. And as a mom of two very spirited boys aged six and eight, I'm awed at the parallel I feel between how it took nine months to build them and how it's taking me nine months to build a patchwork foundation for a new life, a new life that is growing in ways I never thought I deserved. And the bubble hour has been in my ear every single day. Thank you. Uh, That's really cool. And I actually wrote a blog post on pickled at nine months for the very same reason. And I think a lot of us realize this, like nine months. Okay. That's the length of pregnancy. That's the gestation time for a new life. And a lot can happen in those nine months. Stephanie says, I'm 43 years old, the mom of two small boys and the wife to one large boy, who's also 43, but he feels like a little boy to her sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Stephanie's the daughter of a mom who battles anxiety every day to be a better person and the daughter to a dad to whom we had to say goodbye in November of 2020. I was there for his last days in the hospital. I was 72 days sober and it was raw and heartbreaking and terrible and beautiful to feel all those feelings, but I did feel them and I could honor him. The bubble hour was in my ear every single day. And, uh, and Stephanie offers her gratitude for that. And, and I extend that gratitude to everyone who's been a guest on this show, because that's what the show is all about. Um, everyone who spent an hour telling their story to the bubble hour has contributed to people like Stephanie, who used those stories 
to move forward through her own recovery. And that just is amazing. Stephanie says, my story is very much like those who have joined you on the bubble hour. I started drinking at 15 to ease social anxiety and to feel a sense of self-worth. There's been trauma, fear, rejection, anxiety, and I covered it all with an armor of good grades, good behavior, people-pleasing, shape-shifting, wanting to be seen but not wanting to be seen, popularity, college, grad school, a good job, growing independence, achieving all of this with an underlying consistent stream of gross beer and high school and college, wine in young adulthood, and straight vodka as a working mom hiding in the closet, ashamed of failing at everything. Oh, Stephanie, that hurts my heart. After plenty of stops and starts and starts and starts and starts, I pulled out of a nosedive this past summer. My liver was inflamed due to all the vodka I was hiding in my bathroom cabinets. And while I was hiding, it is a story, why I was hiding, it is a story in its own right, but it was a wake-up call I needed to turn things around. My drinking was causing actual physical harm. I thought of my boys' sweet faces, of the way they hugged me really tight, and then take off to catch frogs in the back pond, of how they say I love you, Mama, before they start wrestling each other in the middle of the living room. And how much was I going to miss if I kept up this vodka habit? The answer was clear to me on September 6th morning, all of it. I was going to miss all of it. My recovery patchwork looks like this. The honest, safe space of the bubble hour. Yay. (laughs) Coffee. Weekly Zoom meetings with my fearless ladies from Women of Sobriety. And guys, that's a website, womenforsobriety.org. There's online meetings there. Great program. Uh, Walks and perhaps short jogging bursts when I feel daring. Jelly beans, coffee, uh, a group from Soberistas, a sober day counter and tracker, the sober Instagram community, and again, Stephanie's at Mama Doesn't Drink, attempts at writing, therapy with a beautiful person who helps me to get unstuck, a friend in AA and a few tentative visits under my belt, coffee, rides on my Vespa I named Cheese Doodle because my husband calls me Doodle and the Vespa is bright orange. Stephanie, I love that, and now I want a Vespa, although I have nowhere to go on it, but that sounds amazing. Uh, Other podcasts I discovered through you, such as Home, We Can Do Hard Things, which is the new one from Glennon Doyle, In Recovery, Dear Sugars, and Love Sober, Coffee and Jelly Beans, and Coffee, and I think she says Coffee, Coffee, and More Coffee. Um, Stephanie says, The Opposite Addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And I feel such gratitude towards the bubble hour for being the first connection I made in this last try for an alcohol-free life. So please know that you've helped change my thinking, my dreams, and my life. And that's from Stephanie at Mama Doesn't Drink on Instagram. So thank you, Stephanie. That's a really beautiful letter, and I'm really happy for you. And now I want a Vespa. Maybe for me, not orange. Maybe like, I don't know what mine would be. That cheese doodle's pretty darn cute. Okay, so finally, before I go, I want to tell you guys that it's almost the book birthday for my poetry book, The Ember Ever There. I released it a year ago this month, and I am so grateful for the love that you guys have shown for this book. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you have a copy and you've enjoyed it, you would be helping me out tons and tons and tons if you would kindly leave a review on Amazon. That helps other people find it and it helps keep it up in the magical Amazon algorithms. 
Um, so same goes for the unpickled guide. If you found it helpful and you liked it, please. Um, and any other book that you love and want to support, that's the best thing you can do is to give an, a nice review on Amazon. That's really helpful. So looking back on this last year with this book, one really cool moment was when I was doing a promotional interview for the book last summer and a rehab counselor from Vancouver talked to me on a program called Talk Recovery Radio. And he said, I was actually nervous because he started out by saying, well, I'm not a poetry guy. I don't like poetry, but I read your book to prepare for our interview. And I thought, oh no. And then he said um, that he got very excited about recovery poetry because when he started reading my book, he realized it was putting into succinct words the things that he spent all day trying to explain to his clients. And in particular, he was really taken with a poem that I wrote about making amends. Now, I'm not a 12-step person, but I wrote in this book, I wrote a poem about each of the 12 steps because as a non-12-stepper, I'm curious to understand how these steps might be helpful or insightful to those of us who are not in the 12-step program, also known as Alcoholics Anonymous. But also, I think, how could we think about those steps as non-12-steppers in a way that honors the importance of them to people who are in the program? Because it's like an overlap, you know, we don't have to disagree and we don't have to say like, I didn't get sober that way. So those tools are irrelevant. Um, We need to be open-minded and say, those tools help people. Is there some way I can think of them in a way that's helpful to me? And by the same token, I feel like people that are in AA, we need to respect and celebrate how cherished those tools are for them. And I'm really grateful that people in AA have been welcoming of my poetry about their program and have, I was a little afraid they might say like, you're not in the program, so you can't talk about these insights. But I've heard so many of them talk about the program on this show that I know how much they love the steps. And so um, I really tried to capture their love and affection for the process in these poems. So anyway, this gentleman, he said something that really touched my heart. He said he wished he could paint my ninth step poem on the wall of his rehab and just point to it when people are struggling with the concept of making amends. So I thought I would read that poem to you right now. Amends. So just to recap, the ninth step amends is to approach others and apologize and take responsibility for the things that you've done wrong. Or if it would hurt that person to do it directly, to do something indirectly, to take responsibility and, and, um, and make change in that regard. So here's the poem, Amends. Some will look away. Some will shrug it off. Some will refuse to grant forgiveness or even hear the other side, clinging to their version because it defines them. Allow it. Their reaction is not the point. Some will finish your sentences, nod eagerly, and rejoice in the validation of their perspective, happier for themselves than for you. Accept it. Their compassion is not your pursuit. Some will never know that you've made it right, corrected course, and mended what you could, but you'll know, and that's enough. Others will listen and receive. The clouds will not part. You may feel nothing but it will be done. That's all that matters. 
So now interesting, something happened to me recently that really challenged me regarding this poem. Someone made an amends to me. And she didn't tell me outright that that's what she was doing. And I didn't even really realize it until afterwards. And I'm going to tell you something that's a little bit hard to admit. And that is that um, it felt a little weird to be on the receiving end of it because I felt like the tables were turning a little bit, you know, and I felt like, um, like I realized that I was receiving the apology and the conversation as if it was to make me feel better. But then after it was over, I started thinking about it and I realized that this person had approached me to make an amends as part of her recovery and that it helped her feel better. And you might think that being a mature and thoughtful and, you know, occasionally wise person in recovery that like this would all be good and, and, um, maybe, I don't know, but some, some old unhealed part of me just felt a little bit kind of irritated. I felt a little bit duped. And then what that made me feel like was, huh, I wonder how it feels for family members of people in recovery who've been through the ringer with their loved ones and who, you know, they may not respond all that well when someone makes an amends to them. And I didn't understand that before, but now I could see why, because for me in this relatively like low stakes situation, because the thing that she was apologizing for was nothing major, but it was important to her. Um, even me with like a lot of healing and recovery and understanding under my belt, if that amends felt kind of weird to me, imagine how emotional and hard it must feel to people whose relationships are just so much more complicated and strained by the cycles of addiction and recovery. So I came back, I thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go read my own poem with that with that insight in mind and like see how it lands to me as a person on the other side of the poem because I wrote it as a person in recovery. So now how does it feel reading that poem as a person who received an amends and felt kind of weird about it? I was a little bit worried that the poem wouldn't like hold up. <sighs> but anyway, um when I, when I came back and, and looked through it and, and read, you know, their reaction is not the point. Their compassion is not your pursuit. You'll know that's enough. It will be done. And that's all that matters. And that's when I really started to feel good about it, the interaction, because I started to appreciate that it was an important part of someone else's process and that healing was happening and that, that it wasn't about me. It wasn't even really that much about her. It was about healing and moving on. And that felt good. So I thought that was pretty cool. So there's a link. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for the book, The Amber Ever There. I would love it if you had a copy of it and, um, and help to support the show through supporting the book. That would be great. Um, and yeah, if you buy a copy for a friend, it's like a perfect gift for someone in recovery, whether they're in 12-step recovery or not, because um, it's really written from sort of both sides of that coin. And then there's also poems about, you know, before I got sober and during and after. And there's some lyrics in the back of the book, including the lyrics to the song, I Own It, which is the theme song for this show. And you're always asking me, what the heck are the words to that song? And as you know, I wrote that song. It's from an album that I recorded in 2008. Well, I was still drinking back then. Uh, and that was when I was doing live performances as a performing songwriter, among other things. 
And um, so the book also includes the lyrics to that, that song. So I hope you get it. I hope you like it. And if you do, I would love it if you left a review. Okay, so I'm signing off for today. And as soon as I post this, I'm going to start editing and posting the next shows for you. So that includes upcoming episodes, include Sherry Hoppin, the author of Sober Cycle, Pedaling Through Recovery One Day at a Time. Then I'll have clinical psychologist Betsy Byler from the podcast All Things Substance. And then the last episode uh, before summer break is going to be Victoria Vanstone, who is on Instagram as Drunk Mummy Sober Mummy. And her new podcast is Sober Awkward. So watch for those episodes. And again, once those threes are up, I will be off for the remainder of the summer. And I know you'll appreciate that I am taking good care of myself, just as I always encourage you to do the same. So that's it for this time. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Just want to